you're just in time to get a glimpse of some early pro football in the state of Minnesota. Our friend R.C. Christensen, author and historian, visits us to tell this story in his new book, Mill City Scrum. R.C. joins us here in a moment with all the scoop on the history of pro football in the Twin Cities. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal of positive football history. And we have a really special evening tonight set aside for you. We're going to go way back in time, you know, over 100 years ago, over 120 years ago in some cases, and talk with our good friend, R.C. Christensen, who uh, wrote the book a couple years ago, Border Boys. Well, he has a new book out, and he's here to tell us all about it. Uh, R.C., welcome back to the Pigpen. Oh, thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, what the title of your new book is and uh, a real brief uh, synopsis what it is and before we get into it. Sure. Well, the new book is called Mill City Scrum. And what it is, it's the history of Minnesota's first team in the National Football League. And so when I ask people, you know, who do you think the first team in the NFL from Minnesota is, you almost always get the answer, well, the Minnesota Vikings, which of um, you know, those who follow football um, <clears throat> know that's not true, but they might actually say, well, that must have been the Duluth Eskimos that you're referring to. Uh, no, not even those guys are the first team. The first team was the Minneapolis Marines, which later called themselves the Minneapolis Red Jackets. And so the Minnesota Vikings are actually the third ever team uh, from Minnesota in the National Football League. Oh, very interesting. Uh, RC, now you have uh, the, the book, you've done a lot of uh, research on it. And I, I know uh, those of us that follow you on social media, especially Facebook, we, we see the last year or so you've been popping in and, you know, with uh, pointing out some items that uh, needed corrected for the record. And, uh, you know, we're really glad that you did this. So we're, we're fascinated to hear about this. And uh, you've got a little presentation for us tonight. And uh, we'd love to hear it and uh, ask some questions along the way. Sure. Uh, thanks for bringing up the corrections. I just do want to mention that the, um, I did discover that in some other things that have been published, uh, there are some errors about the Minneapolis Marines. And I don't blame any of the authors for that. Um, it, As it turns out, some of the uh, newspapers that were the opponents of the Minneapolis Marines, uh, those newspapers published uh, incorrect information about the Marines. And so um, what I did is I focused on the Minneapolis and St. Paul newspapers as my primary sources for any information about uh, the Minneapolis Marines. And so uh, those um, I, I default to that information for, uh, for correctness. 
really got to think about the era that we're going to be starting off the conversation on. It's a tough era because sports writers really were just coming about in journalism. Uh, they really weren't specialists. They're just uh, news people that would go and cover a piece of news that was on sports. And like you said, there was a lot of inaccuracies. They didn't have, uh, you know, the modern technologies that we have today and, uh, you know, didn't even know if people were going to be inter that interested in it and especially professional football really wasn't that uh, interesting to folks back then. Well, and the word interesting is is part of it because I'm sure there was a little bit of exaggeration going on sometimes, you know, to try to promote the sport. Um, and who knows where the exaggeration was coming from. Maybe it was from the newspaper or the local team that, you know, wanted people to come out and, and, and pay for tickets. Um, or maybe it was even from the Marines. For all we know, it might have been, you know, sent uh, over the wire with a little bit of exaggeration as well. So, you know, we don't know where that comes from. But yes, uh, it was a time where if you're a researcher looking into these old football teams, you really need to triangulate a lot of things. And one of the things that I did, and I want to mention this, is that I used gene genealogical resources a lot uh, to try to nail down who these players were and where they were from and, and to try to get that accurate. Yeah, that's a, a very daunting task, I'm sure. You know, you're talking a lot about a lot of individuals when you have a span of a team that had multiple rosters, you know, over the years. So I'm sure that was uh, quite the challenge. So we're glad you were able to complete it. So where, where do we start with the Minneapolis Marines? Where, where's their beginning? Well, the Minneapolis Marines actually, um, it's actually important to note that they started out as a baseball team called the Marines. And there was a um, individual named Henry Harrison Pecky was his nickname, Pecky Rhodes. And he, at the age of 16, uh, got a bunch of friends together down in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis, uh, which is where all, all of the Scandinavian immigrants pretty much congregated. But there was more than just Scandinavian immigrants there. And he, he, he was not Scandinavian himself. Um, but anyways, <clears throat> uh, Pecky Rhodes uh, started a team. He called them the Marines. It sounds like they might have actually inherited the name from another team that had played before and had folded. So the actual origin of the Marines name is not exactly known. And even why they chose the name Marines is not known. Um, I've The only speculation that I have on that is that it would have they would have taken the name not too long after the Spanish-American War, uh, when the USS Minneapolis uh, <clears throat> was involved in that war, and and then they, you know, took the uh, took the name from that. So that that's a guess. So uh, not sure about that. But anyways, they started in that neighborhood, and and they started as a baseball team. But then some of the guys decided in the fall, well, hey, let's play football too. And there was already a burgeoning amateur football scene in Minneapolis uh, and St. Paul at the time. And the teams would play uh, in ad hoc weight classes. Basically, they would announce what their weight class is and that they're looking to play someone else. And they would just post their information about looking for games and how to contact them. And then they would uh, report game results. And then they'd, uh, they'd air grievances and all kinds of things in the, in the sports pages. And so, um, the Marines uh, uh, football team name shows up that fall after uh, Pecky Rhodes starts his baseball team. 
Ah, okay. So uh, the game of football, even at the amateur level, is uh, very interesting to the, the folks around the Minneapolis-St. Paul region, as you, as you said. So uh, you had quite a few teams and mostly amateur? Um, well, we there was, uh, you know, college teams, of course. Um, so the University of Minnesota had been playing for some time. And around that time that the, in 1905, when the Marines started their uh, Sandlot football team, um, was right in the midst of these point-a-minute teams that the University of Minnesota was fielding. And on that, those point-a-minute teams was a gentleman named Bobby Marshall. Bobby Marshall um, actually would go on and play in the National Football League, and he would play uh, football until he was nearly 50 years old or maybe after 50 years old. I, I, I don't actually follow his complete trail off to <laughs> when he finished, but, um, but he, he's one of these phenoms, right? And um, one of the uh, unique features about that is, is he was, he was African-American, but he also had some Jewish heritage. And so he was, um, you know, he was growing up at a time uh, that was, um, you know, coming off of uh, not too far off of um, slavery, not too far off of the, the Civil War, and also, um, you know, heading into those that time in the um, in the early 19th, uh, excuse me, 20th century, uh, when there was getting to be a lot more anti-Semitism. So he kind of had uh, the um, the discrimination coming from all sides, but he was a great athlete and you know, people wanted him on, on their team. And so, uh, but anyways, I bring up Bobby Marshall because after he finished with playing for the Gophers, he led a, the first professional team that, that I have been able to find um, from Minneapolis. And that team was called the Minneapolis Deans. And they were sponsored by a business and the players were paid and they had a venue and chart, you know, chart, charged admission and they played a team uh from chicago called the eckersalls and um and that was walter eckersall the university of chicago maroon player uh that had that team organized and so bobby marshall uh is a key uh figure in um not in the history of the marines but also in the history of professional football in minneapolis <clears throat> Hmm, okay. Yeah, now I've heard the name before, but I didn't realize he had uh, you know, that much going for him. I knew he played uh, for the Golden Gophers, but I wasn't wasn't sure. And I knew he had a little bit of NFL experience and pro pro experience. Didn't realize he played till he was 50 years old though. That's that's quite amazing. That's uh, about what 30 years of uh post college football almost. That's uh, And he played a lot of baseball. He was uh, yeah, he was in he was in some um Negro League teams or or Negro barnstorming teams. Um, and uh, he also, he played professional hockey uh, and he also played, uh, you know, basketball teams and he wow. raced motorcycles. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Marshall, so. yeah. He's got, he's got it all going on. Wow. Very interesting yeah. figure. So he, he comes up with the Dean's, uh, you know, and they, they got they got a lot of amateur going on golden gophers uh you know a lot of interest in in the region so so where do we go from there to go towards our, our story of the marines so the marines like i said they started out as a sandlot team um and they they would play you know they started out at about age 16 you know and then through um so 
let's see, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So five years uh, they played in the sandlots um, until the until the players were in their you know early twenties. And um, you know what's interesting is as early in, it, we don't have very good rosters for nineteen oh five and nineteen oh six, but we do get a clear picture when we get to nineteen oh seven. And in nineteen oh seven, there were six players on that sandlot football team, the Minneapolis Marines that went on to play in the national football league. Wow. And these yeah. are, these are all, all locals to the Minneapolis area. Uh, yes. Um, and Amazing. they are, and actually they're all pretty much local to that Cedar Riverside neighborhood. Um, and, um, yeah, about looks like maybe half of them are, are Scandinavian. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they, they, um, they had, you know, I mentioned the Scandinavian part, the Scandinavian immigrants. These were all first generation uh, guys. But this team, um, by the time they, and I'm jumping ahead, but by the time they become really popular in Minneapolis, they had people on the team that were from all different backgrounds. And and so, uh, you know, the team really reflected the the the, the entire community of, of Minneapolis, not just that cedar River, riverside neighborhood so hmm. interesting now do I, do you want to mention some of the names of the the six individuals that made the nfl sure the those players named art gausted uh walt buland al redeen he went by the nickname sheepy redeen and he was one of those mis, mis, misidentified people that i've at least gotten corrected on pro football reference um Ruben Ursella, he is um, pop, he is the most important player in this conversation, um, <clears throat> besides Bobby Marshall. Um, he, but and he's even more important to the Marines than Bobby Marshall. Um, and and I I've made some arguments that I believe that Ruben Ursella needs to have a little bit more recognition somehow in some kind of venue, some kind of. Um, uh, maybe a Minnesota Sports Hall of Fame, perhaps in the Hall of Very Good for the Professional Football Research Association. Um, but anyways, Ruben Arcella, he was he was the only um, Italian kid on the team, uh, but he was the quarterback. And um, he um, in, out of that position, he would do a lot of running around the ends. He was a really small guy, uh, but he was also he was best known for his drop kicking ability and and anytime it was within the 50 yard line, he would just as soon kick for points than take the team any further. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then um, Charles Jonason is another one. Uh, he actually had a, a twin brother on the team for a short time named Henry Jonason. And then Mike Palmer, whose actual first name is George. So, yeah. um, but also at that time, there was another player who did not end up playing in the NFL. But he ended up managing the team and owning the NFL franchise. And that that uh, person's name is John Dunn. So he started out, he actually played for a team for three years before he joined the Marines in 1907. He had played for a team called the Cedars from, you know, Cedar Riverside neighborhood. And then um, he joined the Marines and then eventually, and then he became their manager um, after they, uh, uh, went through another manager and then um, and then he ended up owning the NFL franchise and he became the NFL vice president from 1922 through 1928. So he was 
he was right under uh, Joe Carr. Wow. Now, I sit there and think about that when you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, Ursella being the quarterback. Now, think about this. The Sandlot team starts in 1905. The forward pass doesn't become legal till a year later, and it's really not even being used uh, because of uh, some strange rules that would be foreign to us. Um, but uh, till for almost another seven, eight years. To, so, so these these guys are playing football at a very fascinating time and learning the fundamentals of the game as it's evolving into something much different than they started with. So uh, fascinating era. Yeah, and they they um, they did adopt the forward pass rather quickly uh, when, when it became an option. But um, one of the things I want to note is that as early as 1908, the newspapers were calling what the Marines were doing on the field. And remember, the Marines were extremely dominant um, over the course of a little bit later on, 1912 um, through, uh, well, I want to say like a six or seven year span, whatever. They were beating their opponents by a 10 to one ratio. So, Mm. uh, yeah, they were just scoring all the time. But as, as early as 1908, um, they, they were said to run their, uh, plays in machine-like formations. And, and the interesting thing about that is that in, so that was in 1908, in 1910 is when the coach at the University of Minnesota, uh, Dr. Dr. Henry L. Williams, that's when he is known to have, um, started using his, what's called the Minnesota shift. Um, and it's, so it's a shift, offensive shift, which are no longer allowed. But at that time, uh, basically, you would start with, um, I think, the, the center. And uh, I think the, the way Williams did it, the center and the tackles on the line. And the guards and the ends would stand back from the line. And then when they would start the, um, start the play before the snap, they would all jump to a position on the line and shift around to make the line unbalanced and, and you know, to some favor. And then, um, and then they would snap as soon as they were down. So, so it gave a lot of advantage to the offense because they got some momentum going um, against the defense. And so, what what I what I'm getting at here is the Minneapolis Marines, um, very early on, before they even had a an official coach, went um, when Ruben Ursella was still the coach for the team, they were using the Minnesota shift. But that was the evidence of that is from 1911. So the interesting thing is three years earlier, they were said to have been using machine like formations. Well, what was that? And, you know, it makes you makes you speculate whether there was a little bit of back and forth um, between maybe uh, Dr. Henry L. Williams, (laughs) the mastermind at University of Minnesota and this Ruben Ursella. Uh, I don't know, was Ursella coming up with these shift type things before Dr. Williams started putting in at University of Minnesota? We will never know. But it's interesting to speculate that that perhaps there was something going on in the sandlots that ended up uh, being pretty influential there at the University of Minnesota. Well, definitely could be. Now, so Ursella did not play for the University of Minnesota. He wasn't like a, a protege coming out of that system. He he was totally separate or maybe went and watched the games, but he wasn't a player from the university. No, as a matter of fact, none of these guys were. So um, uh, that was the interesting thing too, about this team until um, let's see, I think it was. So uh, until 1913, so 1905 to 1913, this team only had one guy that had ever played 
um, college football. And, and it was a guy named, um, uh, his last name was Costello. And he, he played for a, a very small college called St. Mary's in, in, in Kansas. And, uh, he, but he was from Minneapolis. And then he came back and then he played with the team. Um, so that would have been the only direct college influence until Bobby Marshall joined the team in 1913. Um, so, but they would play other teams that had former golfers on the teams in these Sandlot teams. And then, of course, Bobby Marshall was out there in the Sandlots playing up for different teams. And, 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 and you know, he had his Minneapolis Deans and all that. So <clears throat> I don't know. It, it's, it, you know, I'm finding that this, you know, in this research, that it's a really small world, <laughs> the, the world of, of independent football. Um, and I'm sure it was even a smaller world, right, in, in, that, in the Twin Cities where these guys were playing. And I'm sure they would, you know, they'd gather in the pool halls and they would probably talk a lot of football. And you probably didn't need to go very far away to, to, to figure out what it is that Dr. Henry L. Williams was doing at the U of M to be able to copy what he was doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's uh, it's very astute of you to to pick up on this that uh, Ursella and the the boys were having these uh, machine like uh, movements before the snapper worded uh, something like that, and then a couple of years later that the Minnesota shift is coming. So you you might be onto something there with uh, maybe he got that shift from from the Sandlot team. Yeah, that's complete speculation, but it's kind of interesting. At, at yeah, least, definitely. Right? Well, hey, interesting things make conversation. So that's that's what we're here to do. So, okay. So, so where do they go next? They're, they're a Sandlot team. They're having some success. Where, where do they go from there? Well, yeah. So they have some success. Their main rival in the Sandlots was a team called the Indians. And they actually absorbed the Indians. Okay. And then uh, they, they went on to become a semi-professional team. And so... The way they became semi-professional is they um, hired a manager named Frank Hammer, and he was um, a blue-eyed uh, uh, first-generation Norwegian um, who was an apprentice in the newspaper trade. And so around that time, they also became much more present in the newspaper, <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> uh, there was more articles about them and things, um, but he, he managed them and um, he, he, they definitely became, you know, by some definitions, they would have been called professional, um, you know, by 1912. Um, but other definitions say that a professional team needs a coach that comes from like a system. Uh, um, and so that doesn't happen until 1913. So for the period of 1910 through 1912, they play, uh, by what, you know, <clears throat> what the stricter definition, uh, says would be semi-professional. So, they, they rented a venue, they sold tickets, they had fundraisers, they had a pep band, uh, a 30-piece band. And um, they wow. then they became rival, their main rivals were the Beavers in Minneapolis and the Laurels in St. Paul. And both of their rivals had former, uh, you know, high school standouts and, and, and former college players from not only from the University of Minnesota, but also from the other local colleges like uh, St. Thomas and Hamlin and, and uh, McAllister. So, you know, there was, there was, uh, there was former college players kind of floating around in, in those, uh, in those areas. Oh, very cool. All right. So they're, they're, you know, gaining some ground on the, the, the I guess, the semi-professional, you know, what, what exactly is the, the definition? What, what 
defines semi-professional from professional in your eyes? Is it, I was always under the understanding professional was everybody on the team was play, paid or semi-professional was maybe only bits and pieces of the players. Is that, is that not correct? There's different ways to define these things. And there's been, I've had a lot of discussions with people about what does it mean, right? And so I, I had a lot of discussion with people before I came up with sort of my eras of, of this team. Um, so professional means everybody's, you know, getting paid. Now, the way the, um, and this, they weren't the only team to do this, the Marines, uh, but they ran it as a cooperative style. So uh, basically whatever they could get for net profits, they would divvy up. Right. Okay. And and so it was it wasn't like that any particular player was was making more money than anyone else. Okay. Um, but based on, you know, they were once they get um into their late semi-professional time and then um and then into their early professional time, they were, you know, attracting, you know, thousands of fans, uh, you know, four or five thousand fans. In fact, their their peak in terms of fan interest was in 1913. When they played the Beavers, uh, their rival, and they attracted 8,000 fans uh, to uh, Nicollet Park to watch those two teams play. And these were just independent teams from, from Minneapolis. They were both from the south side of Minneapolis. And the, the Marines and later the Red Jackets, neither one of them ever played for, in front of more fans in Minneapolis or St. Paul after that. That was that was wow. the peak for the for attendance the high water mark wow that, yes. that's that's impressive for that era Eight thousand fans that's uh pretty good for pro football i bet you any pro football team would be jealous of that in the, that era oh yeah i mean you see you know uh even once they're in the nfl they go to chicago and it might say three thousand fans or you know something like that <laughs> um and so you know a lot of those big city teams they had um deep uh deeper war chests so to speak right so you know they were they were maybe able to, um, you know, weather some of the things that the Marines couldn't because they just didn't have the deep pockets. So fascinating. Okay, so where does our story of the Marines take us next? So one of the things to note here is that um, starting in 1912, um, a former All American from University of Minnesota. Excuse me, not a former All American, but you know he was he was the first All American uh, from the University of Minnesota Gophers, and that was John McGovern, and. In 1912, he started putting together these um, these exhibition teams that would play on Thanksgiving Day, and they were called the All-Stars. Well, the Minnesota All-Stars, because they were mostly made up of former golfers. But there was other people that would play, too. Like, for example, in 1912, the first year they played, uh, Pudge Heffelfinger played on that team. Um, and and part of it is because he's from he played. He's from Minneapolis. Uh, and actually, when Pudge Heffelfinger, when he played high school football at Minneapolis central. He also, he also played for the Gophers <laughs> back then. <laughs> so, you know, a little eligibility weird weirdness going on, but um, anyways, hey, he played don't, on that. Don't, don't tell team. Walter camp that we don't want to have any <laughs> violations happen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but yeah. So yeah. Cause Heffelfinger went on to Yale. Right. But then he came, but then he came back. Um <clears throat> But but he was also he played in the same backfield as Dr. Williams, who was the coach, right? Because Dr. Williams is from Yale as well. Um, so um, this exhibition team they, that they put together, they played for a number of years. And um, after that first that first year in 1912, uh, it was the Beavers who played the Minnesota All Stars. But remember, in 1913, the Marines beat the Beavers and earned the chance uh, 
to play the Minnesota All-Stars on Thanksgiving Day. And they and they never gave up that spot um, un, until much later. Hmm. Okay, so that that's sort of their uh, their their Super Bowl, I guess. And that's the honor that you get for for winning and you know, being the best team in the area is that to get that All Star game. Yep, and they were the best team in the area for years. So okay, yep. All right, very very nice, and uh, some some great uh, uh, stars there from those uh, Golden Gophers teams uh, that era because they had some very superior teams. And when you throw a Pudge Heffelfinger in there too, that's uh, it's just some icing on the cake. So. Great, great uh, thing to hear. Yeah. And okay. so, yeah. So once once they became professionals, um, then they started. They had new rivals. Well, they they uh, they absorbed the Beavers players, right? Um, and then they had, then their rival was the East Ends, um, which was from uh, nor- uh, Northeast Minneapolis. And then they ended up absorbing them as well. Um, and along the way, um, they started. So they. I mentioned the fan interest. It sort of peaked in 1913, and then it started to, to dwindle. Um, one of the reasons for that is just this sort of kind of an attitude thing in, in Minneapolis, because at the peak of their success, when the Marines played the Beavers, it was like, you know, it was two kind of neighborhood-type teams playing each other, right? And, and so there was that fan interest in that way. But um, so then because interest was so high – then the Minneapolis Park Board started a Twin City Amateur Football League. And they would get like 100 teams a year sign up to play in this league. And it was all amateur. Wow. And But but the Marines and a few other teams, like I mentioned, the East Ends and things like that, they were making money. So they didn't want to play in this amateur league. And so they actually got public criticism for that, for professionalism. And so um, the fan interest in the Marines started to slowly dwindle after that and the marines um because so many of the teams especially by 1915 most of the heavy teams as they called them the the adults who were playing amateur football were playing in the park league and so the marines had to go outside of minneapolis since so they went to places uh you know start they early on started going to duluth and they went to superior wisconsin and then they went down to rock island and and davenport uh, uh iowa uh and, and and things like that and they started playing those teams but but they beat them all you know they 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 were they were unstoppable and the um so i'm looking at their scoring here so from 1912 to 1917 they beat the opposition 1416 points to 145 hmm. and so so that was nearly 10 to 1 and 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 during the period of 1913 to 1917, they were 35-3 and 1. Um, and then over all of the years, if you count the Sandlot, they had only had six losses from 1905 to 1917. So it's 52-6-3. So they they <clears throat> they were just an unbelievably dominant team before World War One. Wow. Now something that uh if you don't mind me asking, if we go back to, to the uh, the Park League, that amateur league, you, you said that they were fielding uh, over 100 teams a season. I mean, is this, uh, I mean, how, how did they uh, f- facilitate that? Did they have like multiple fields at this park or or, or is it like multiple parks? And I'm, I'm picturing like one venue and they're t- taking 100 teams and that's uh, quite a chore. Sure. Um, and for anyone who's ever been to Minneapolis, um, 
and, and, and the Twin Cities in general with St. Paul um, knows that there, there's a huge park system there. And there's actually a lot of green space. And so um, from, a, from a very early time, uh, these cities uh, set aside green space. And uh, these teams, uh, the, the, the park had this, had, they didn't quite have the space. There was times when they had so many teams that they, you know, were having to schedule two a day. And then they were having to get, take some buys, you know, uh, for some of the teams each week. Um, but they just kept adding on to the green space and, and, and these teams just kept filling it up. So this is multiple so, locations of parks around the area. So, okay. Right. And there was, okay. there was an extensive trolley system. And so it wasn't hard, you know, to get from one place to another to play a game. So I'm guessing on Sundays you'd see whole teams, you know, getting, getting on a trolley and heading across town to play some other team. So Ah, okay. That, that makes a lot more sense. I, I'm somehow I was envisioning, uh, you know, when you said the park, I'm thinking, man, there's one field and hundred teams are playing. I mean, what a, a mud hole that's going to be after a few <laughs> weeks, <laughs> playing 24 <laughs> hours, uh, seven days a week. No. Okay. So we're, we're at the point where now the, the guys are on the Marines are getting paid. They're, they're playing some teams from around uh, the local area, you know, even out of state teams and uh, doing pretty successfully. So, so what's happens next? Well, right at the end, um, well, not completely right at the end. First of all, in 1913, a few of the players got a taste of uh, being ringers. They, so Ruben Ursella, Bobby Marshall, a character named Fred Chicken and um, and Walt Beeland. Those, those four guys played for West Duluth against Duluth City. And of course, those were the early teams that ended up becoming, you know, forming into uh, the, the, the Duluth Kellys and the Duluth Eskimos, right? Some of those players went on to play uh, in, in those early NFL teams. But um, they played as ringers for West Duluth against Duluth City. And of course, they won. And then in 1917, the very last game that they played, uh, most of the players, um, the Marines in 1917, and this was a very successful team, 1917, they, the Davenport dubbed the Minneapolis Marines the pride of the Northwest. I mean, they were just dominant. But then you had um, five Minneapolis Marines players uh, go play for Rock Island um, against um, their rival. Davenport and Bobby Marshall went and played for Davenport. And um, the, when the Marines played for Rock Island, uh, so basically they ran away from Bobby Marshall in that game and, and, and they just dominated uh, against Davenport and, um, and, and they get, and then they got a taste of love um, in Rock Island because by that time, remember 1913 was the fan interest peak in Minneapolis in, in, in the Marines and then all of a sudden they go play in Rock Island and there were, you know, I think it was 8,000 fans there, you know, in 1917. And so all of a sudden they were getting a taste of glory and um, they started thinking maybe we should play for Rock Island. <laughs> ah, okay. So some, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe some defections uh, in the works here. Well, but then before that could happen, right. Then world war one hit. Okay, so um, there, um, of course, World War One actually hit in 1917, but uh, most of the players um, did not get drafted or enlist yet. Okay, I, I can't remember if there was a draft in World War One, but most of them 
Uh, uh, yes, there was. There was a draft in World War One, but most of them hadn't enlisted yet. And um, and but then 1918 rolls around, and you know, is I assume more Marines than I'm aware of were actually in the armed forces, but I was able to tr track down uh, like seven of them that did serve in the armed forces, including, um, you know, if they played for some service teams and things like that. And so Fred Chicken, <laughs> interesting name, his last name is actually Slepica, and um, which is Czech for chicken. So, um, so, so he just went by the name Chicken. Fred Chicken. So did his brother. His older brother also played football, and he went by Joe, or he's his Joe Chicken. So we got Joe Chicken hmm. and Fred Chicken, sports guys from from uh, Minneapolis. Hmm. Anyways, Fred Chicken played for the Air Service Mechanics School in Saint Paul, um, and then uh, Ruben Ursella um, played for the 604th Engineering Regiment, which went to France, fought in France, and he actually played service ball over there in France. So. Hmm. Um, but there's a few other guys some to, to hone their game, I guess, when you go and play <laughs> with some other areas, you know, you guys from other areas and you're learning some new tricks and uh, sharpening your skills a little bit. Well, you know, of course, mostly it was just to forget the war, but, but they, um, uh, you know, they got a taste of, I guess what it amounts to is between Rock Island in the end of 1917 and then some of their service team experience, they got, they, they got, got it in their heads that, Oh, there is something else besides the Minneapolis Marines. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> so, so when they get back then from war in 1919, um, then what happens is six uh, former Marines signed on and not all at once, they kind of trickled in, they signed to play for rock Island. And so I, I call this the rock Island ripoff. Hmm. <laughs> Because uh, the, the the manager for Rock Island actively recruited these guys. And um, like I said, it was a trickle. Um, I, I think there's four that, that immediately joined. Um, and then they, they got up to six. Um, and and so, yeah, the they played for Rock Island in 1919. And they also played in 1920. And, and then there was two more that, that left the Marines in 1920 to go to Rock Island. Um, and that Rock Island team with those, you know, those six uh, ex-Marines players, ex-Minneapolis Marines football team players, um, they were incredibly dominant in the same way the Minneapolis Marines were, right? And so they, they Ruben Ursella, he was the coach. He was the quarterback. Um, and he had his best year. He scored 106 points. He had he had had a 101 points year back in 1913, which was like I said a big year for them. But he scored 106 points for the Rock Island Independence this season, and they, the Rock Island Independence in in total outscored their opponents 309 to 12. The former Marines players were responsible for 30 touchdowns, hmm. um, you know, uh, and and. All the extra points you can think of and all that they finished with a 9-1-1 record and of course i'm going these stats are sort of gleaned from the information that's there right so these aren't like they didn't like publish the stats that were easy to find mm -hmm. so i had to sort of like accumulate them so um so uh um hopefully i'm accurate on that <laughs> um and then um 
and then they uh, because in the in the book I say that he's like for example I say Ruben Ursella scored at least 106 points because not all the points were ever accounted for in every game. Okay, right. so so that's 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 how I word that in the book. Um, but anyways, they finished with a nine one and one record. The Canton Bulldogs were a big team at that in that year in 1919. Rock Island tried to play them. They even scheduled a date, pre-sold tickets, and then tried to entice uh, Jim Thorpe to have his Canton Bulldogs play Rock Island, but they couldn't. So uh, Rock Island said, okay, fine. If you're not going to play us, then we are definitely the champions. So they they dubbed themselves the champions of the USA. If you can't uh, play the best and they, they don't want to play, I guess you, you can lay rights to that claim. So very <laughs> interesting team. So And that was the, uh, when you say that the, they took, uh, players off of the Marines to play for Rock Island. It was the substantial guys that you're talking about. You're, you know, you mentioned Ursula and Bobby Marshall, uh, Fred Chicken. You know, th- these are the the core members of that Marines team. Yep. Yeah, that's right. They 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 ripped off the best players, and you know, despite that, the Marines did. Um, they recovered. You know, in terms of they 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 were able to attract other players that. Um, you know, we're lo- local to the Minneapolis scene um, and, um, and and backfilled. And I mean, they still ended up, uh, you know, during that 1919 and 1920 with a 10, 2 and 4 record. So, I mean, they, they still did pretty well. Um, but one of the things I always wonder is, you know, the Marines, they played the Staley's in, in 19, um, in, in 1920. And um, the Staley's beat the Marines three to nothing. And that same year, they they tied the Staley's tied Rock Island zero to zero scoreless, and then beat the Rock Island seven to nothing. Now, what what if <laughs> mm-hmm. all of those Marines players had stayed with the Marines? You know, would it have been any different? You know, um, and, and I and I bring up the Staley's because. You know, the Staley's became the Chicago Bears and there was, you know, uh, Hall of Famers on that team. And and it's uh, it just would have been interesting to see if the world would have been different if the Marines had had stayed together. Yeah, I, I bet. So you know, if we're talking about the Staley's, we're talking about uh, Rock Island, we're talking about, you know, 19 going into the, the roaring 20s. Uh, we have to start thinking about the. Uh, early predecessor to the NFL, the APFA, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be coming about. So wh- what did the Marines have to do with, with the national football league and, and some of those teams? Right. So they, um, by that time they were already going abroad, you know, to play some of these players or bringing them into uh, Minneapolis. And so they joined. Um, well, one of the things that I bring up in the book is that there was actually it was a very tumultuous period. There was a lot of different entities that were trying to form leagues back then. And there was dissatisfaction with the, within the APFA as well, which became the NFL. Um, and so there was a lot of efforts to try to form a Western league that was separate from what would become the NFL or a Western conference that would be part of the NFL. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that all just sort of, sh- you know, shook out and the um, the Marines j- joined uh, the APFA, which a year later would, would rename itself the National Football League. 
but they joined in 1921. And so they became, you know, part of what we, you know, what most people consider to be American pro football uh, nowadays. Um, uh, they started that in 1921. Their first game was against the Chicago Cardinals uh, in Chicago. Oh, okay. So now, now we're starting to get some familiar names here, you know, going from, you know, Staley's of the Bears, the Chicago Cardinals, are now, of course, the, the Arizona Cardinals. So we've got some uh, early teams there. And I believe it wasn't uh, 1921, the, the year that the Green Bay Packers joined the NFL or the APFA that time too. Is yeah. Right, is right yeah. And, and um, the, the, of course the first, so one of the trivia questions is, you know, who, what was the first ever game between a Minnesota NFL team and a, and a Green Bay NFL team, and it was the Marines and, and the Packers. So, <laughs> and uh, somewhere I, I think it, I, I took kept track, but it took almost like a, I think a dozen NFL games, for and and like forty some years for um for a Minnesota team to finally beat Green Bay. You know, so in other words, it, it took <laughs> the Vikings to beat Green Bay. <laughs> wow, interesting, so. interesting. Okay, so how how were they? How did they do uh, in their NFL time? I mean, how how was their successes? Right. So they um they were not very good in the NFL. So they had a four eighteen and two NFL record, and and over those four years, and um, right in the middle of all that, in nineteen twenty two, there was some turmoil. So that year. John Dunn, the the manager for the Marines, he was elected vice president. And that actually proved to be beneficial to the whole situation because um, they had been, you know, this Marines team had been playing the All-Stars for years. But in 1922, there was um, uh, a few players, Bobby Marshall, a player named Paul Desjardins. He was a University of Chicago product. And um, Eddie Eddie Novak, uh, three players, who um, Bobby Marshall and, and Paul Desjardins for sure did not play for the Marines that year. But Eddie Novak might have played one game for the Marines. Um, but when they got to the All-Star game, it was those three players were on the All-Stars. And, you know, there was a lot of bitterness there. And John Dunn said, no way, the Marines will not play that team. And, of course, he brought up the idea of, of elig- eligibility issues. Right. Because, you know, they were under contract, at least verbal contract uh, with Dunn. Um, I don't think he had paper contracts. From what I can tell, I don't think there was any. So um, uh, so Paul Desjardins is actually incorrectly listed as a member of the Marines, but he never played for them. Uh, Bobby Marshall and Paul Desjardins played for the Ironwood Michigan Legion team that season. Um Desjardins may have practiced with the Marines very early on because they thought he was going to play for them. Uh, but <clears throat> anyways, so there's this turmoil. Dunn is saying, no, the Marines, you can't, we can't play them. And he's the manager of the Marines. But here's the issue. It looks, it appears, and I was trying to, I, you know, I contacted Ralph Wilson Jr. Library there at, at the uh, Pro, uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame to see if I could get some clarity. And I don't think, and I don't believe there is any clarity on this. But um it looks like so the marine athletic club which is the club right that that supplied the the team the the players for this team right through all of those years from 1905 or whenever they became an an official club right um they supplied the the players for this team 
even into the NFL, you know, the first, the, and then here in 1922, um, I think it, it, it appears that it was actually John Dunn and maybe some investors that had actually purchased the NFL franchise. And so the Marine Athletic Club was just supplying the players. And John Dunn was just a member of that club. Well, as it turns out, when John Dunn said, no, you can't play in the All-Star Games, uh, All-Star Game, the other players revolted and said, well, heck, you're just one guy on in this Marine Athletic Club. You know, you're, you know, and they, they, the newspaper said that they deposed him. So they basically pushed him aside and said, nah, we're going to play. Well, there was some back and forth with that. And, and they, and the, uh, when Dunn said, well, you can't play as the Marines, then they did an end around and they said, no, we'll play as Russell Tollefson's all-stars. Russell Tollefson was the coach of the team at that time. And they said, oh, we'll just play it anyways, but we'll play it under a different name. Well, um, so what, what, uh, Dunn and his investors did at that point is they formed a corporation, um, and they, and, and, and that, that basically then owned the NFL franchise. And, and then he put his foot down and said, Hey, if you're going to play in the NFL, you have to play for my corporation. And so, um, so they worked through that. And then that team actually did play the all-stars uh, <clears throat> on that, that Thanksgiving day. So there was a lot of turmoil at, at that point. And I think that whole situation um, kind of left some bad feelings in a lot of different places. And, and so, you know, a couple years later when the Marines, uh, dissolved, um, or, or, or I shouldn't say dissolved, but they sort of, well, they did dissolve in one respect, but they, they, the franchise was put on ice. Um, part of it was because there just wasn't even a lot of love maybe from the, the football playing community in Minneapolis and St. Paul for the Marines anymore. So, uh, we're up to the point where, okay, they, they, but they take a break here for, from football operations for, for a few years as a franchise. And uh, so, so what happens next after that, that little break that they had? Well, the break is actually important the, okay. because during that break, John Dunn tried to move his NL, NFL franchise to Rochester, Minnesota, which is where the um, Mayo Clinic is. And they weren't interested. Um, and then, um, the next year in 1926, he tried to actually revive the NFL franchise. He had a coach all set up and they had actually signed contracts with players and everything. And then the coach was supposed to be, his name was Joe Brandy. He was supposed to be an investor. They get down to, uh, I can't remember if it was New York city or wherever the, wherever the uh, meeting was. And Joe Brandy s- pulled out and said, no, I don't want to be an investor. I just want to be paid a salary. And so, you know, I suppose John Dunn didn't have the money otherwise. And so they didn't play that team. So if they had played that year, they were they were going to be called the Twin City Lumberjacks. So that was the team that almost was <laughs> for the NFL. Um, and then the last two years of that intermission in 1927 and 28, um, John Dunn and his uh you know, he actually fielded a, a, a Minneapolis Marines team, but he didn't field them in the NFL and he only fielded them for three games. So in 1927, they played the NFL's New York Yankees, which was Red Grange's team. Um, they played them in an exhibition game. And then in 1928, um, a player from the University of Minnesota, uh, Herb Josting, who w- was an incredible fullback there, um, 
he had been jilted by the NFL. He was expecting to get paid like Red Grange had. And um, they nobody would pay him that. So he ended up just playing for this ad hoc Minneapolis Marines team against the Packers and the Bears. Um, and so that was the intermission years. And um, the other thing about that is, you know, John Dunn was still vice president of the NFL during those years. And the interesting thing about this is that he actually, at least after that time in an interview, he talked about how he at that time pushed for a draft and, and, and uh, pushed for a playoff system, pushed for championships, pushed for conferences. But the draft is the key part here um, because that's always been attributed later, right, to, to Commissioner uh, Burt Bell. And mm -hmm. so in my mind, um, I don't know if it was necessarily John Dunn's idea to have a draft. I think that it was probably talked about by a lot of the different teams, right? Because especially those teams who were in smaller communities and things like that, they struggled against the, the teams like from Chicago and things. And so to them, to be able to have a draft was quite attractive. So I think that it, that's an indication that during the 20s, those, those team owners were actually talking about a draft. It just didn't become a thing, right, until the 1930s. Yeah, and you also had the dynamic of the NFL at that time. It was, uh, it was, you know, it had expanded pretty big in the early 20s, and it, uh, it contracted quite a bit to just the larger cities. And in 1930s rolled around, and some of the smaller cities started coming in. You know, with the exception of Green Bay and and some others, but uh, you know, teams like Pittsburgh and stuff came in in the 1930s, where you know, that's I think that's what helped uh, promote the draft, and the smaller teams came back in. Smaller market teams, that is. Yeah. 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 Um, one other thing to note about this intermission period is in 1928, Park League football was huge. And the, the team of the day was a team called the Fauchés. So here's an amateur league team, but they're being sponsored pretty heavily by Wilbur Fauché, who built the Fauché Tower, which was the tallest building uh, probably between Chicago and, and Seattle at the time. And... Um, and so who knows, these guys might have gotten paid anyways, but uh, we'll never know that for sure. But um, the the featured player on that team was a guy named Joe Lillard. And Joe Lillard went on to become, and he was an African-American player, and he went on to become the featured uh, player for the Chicago Cardinals in 1932 and 33 before the NFL uh, went, uh, uh, you know, went into a segregation period. And so um, here's Joe Lillard in Minneapolis playing amateur football in front of, in 1928, they played two championship games, one for the Minneapolis championship and one for the Twin Cities championship. They had 15,000 fans at each game. And the fans were just standing around the sidelines mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or, or they were on buildings and, and things looking, looking down there. They had a very a small uh, grandstand there. But it's, it's interesting to note that the Marines weren't a thing, uh, you know, because like when the Marines played their games with Herb Josting against the Bears and Packers, those were away games, right? So um, that year, it was this Fauché's team with Joe Lillard that was the big thing in, in Minneapolis, besides the Gophers, of course. So let's let's go back into to our NFL talk on, on Minneapolis. And so what so what's happening now? We're we're in the late twenties, and uh, what's happening with the team? They were trying to get back in. So in nineteen um, twenty, yes, it was in twenty eight. 
And it was either shortly before or after the Chicago game, uh, those sort of ad hoc team with Krub Josting. Um, John Dunn's father died. And it, I think John Dunn's father had some money uh, because he, he had been a, like a manager for a flour mill or something in, in, in Minneapolis. And so it was kind of a moneyed family, I believe. And I, and, and I'm just guessing here. Okay. I don't have, I don't know this for sure, but it seems to me, maybe he came into some extra cash. And so he, and so at that point he revived the franchise and he revived it as the Minneapolis red jackets. And then the name of the team is in homage to uh, the first Minnesota regiment from uh, 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 that fought in the civil war and they fought in red shirts because that's all they had. And so, um, and so it's an, an homage to them, I believe. And, um, um, and they were led by Herb Josting. So he took over as, as coach uh, and, and they fielded a team and they, they had, um, it was it was pretty much an all college aggregation then. So this this new iteration of this franchise looked much more like a, an NFL team that we think of as an NFL team. Um, okay. And then in their second season, uh, it was George Gibson uh, who from the University of Minnesota who took over. Herb Jostin continued to play, but George Gibson was the coach that second year. And in that second season, they actually had three players from the uh, from the University of Southern California. So mm-hmm. the line had three guys who were from USC Trojans. Um, and uh, one of them became, went on, Nate Berger went on to become a big film guy uh, working in Hollywood. Uh, but, um, but they had, I mean, they had a team that when you looked at them and their, their pedigree in terms of football, you'd say, yep, that's a pro team. That's uh uh, so if there was ever a pro team in Minneapolis, the red, the red jackets were for sure the representation of that. Okay. And and how did they end up faring in the NFL? Yeah, not so good. So they, they had a two 16 and one NFL record. And um, the interesting thing about that is mid season in 1930, um, John Dunn and his investors, they sold off all the player contracts and most of those, I think three players went to Green Bay, but all the rest went to the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. And so the Frankfurt Athletic Association then, after November 2nd, um, they actually played Yellow Jackets and Red Jackets games. They played out the season because the, the Red Jackets games were, um, they were all road games anyways. And 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 they were out in that direction. So um, they 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 mixed up those rosters so we have an interesting thing here where we have two nfl teams and they're using players from both rosters for both teams and um yeah and so there was um so three players george gibson nate barriger and herb josting they appeared in every red jackets and yellow jackets game after november 2nd and Hmm. so that was that, that was nine games and um i believe six of those games were back-to-back Saturday, Sunday games. So they played Saturday and then they played Sunday. Well, I guess, yeah. It, yeah. I, I guess if you, you blend those uh, two color jackets, you almost have the orange jackets at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, they were just pullover sweaters. So I'm assuming it'd be pretty easy <laughs> to just put them on, but um, yeah. And so, and so their last game that they ever played was December 7th, uh, 
1930 in Portsmouth, Ohio against the Portsmouth Spartans. And the last um, <clears throat> player to touch the ball was a guy named Kelly Rodriguez, who had come from the red jack or excuse me, the yellow jackets. Um, and um, he was actually a, a Spaniard. So he wasn't even, um, I don't know if he was yet an American citizen at that time. So, hmm. well, that is uh, definitely fascinating. And uh, of course, you have many more details in the book that uh, you know folks can pick up. And why don't you again, let's share with uh, everybody what the title of the book is and where folks can get a copy of it at. Sure. The title is Mill, M-I-L-L, Mill City Scrum, S-C-R-U-M. And so Mill City Scrum is available, has been published through Amazon. So if you go to Amazon, you can get it there. Um, it should be now or very soon pushed out um, through other places like Barnes and Noble and places like that. And I don't mean the physical ones, just all the online stores, right? So, um, and then also the Amazon International uh, different websites, right? So Amazon Canada and all these other places, you can you can get it as well. Um, and then if you just want some more information about the book, the website then is MPLS which is the abbreviation for Minneapolis, mplsmarines.com. Okay, very interesting. Uh, make sure you check out that site, get a copy of the book. And folks, if uh, you're in the Pittsburgh area near the end of July of 2023, uh, Mr. R.C. Christensen is going to be a, a guest speaker uh, talking uh, about this book and these great teams that he spoke with tonight. And you can meet him in person at the PFRA uh, convention uh, for 2023 in Pittsburgh. If you look for some details on that, you can go to pigskindispatch.com. We have a link there for the PFRA conference uh, to uh, get there. And, uh, get to, to meet uh, both RC and myself will be down there. So uh, along with a lot of good fellows that are talking about some great football history, uh, be a very interesting weekend, I'm sure. So RC, we really appreciate you coming on here, uh, talking about this very fascinating team and era of football and uh, sharing this great research with us in your book and uh, with what you said tonight. Yeah, no, it was great talking about it. This is the first time I've talked to anybody about it at length. That's all the football history we have today, folks. Join us back tomorrow for more of your football history. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.